Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. This week's discussion is brought to you by Sea and Shoreline and Resource Environmental Solutions. Sea and Shoreline is a Florida-based aquatic restoration firm that's on a mission to restore Florida's water bodies and to protect our coastline communities against severe storms. You can check out their projects at seaandshoreline.com. And of course, Res. Res is a national leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, offering nature-based solutions with guaranteed performance through innovative delivery options. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida and its environmental challenges by visiting www.res.us. All right, I'm happy to introduce this week's conveniently timed guest, Jeff Littlejohn. Now, when I met Jeff, he was the Deputy Secretary for Regulatory Programs at the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. But he's now a principal at, and this is a long list, everyone, National Stormwater Trust, a principal at on-site performance, senior policy advisor at the Adams and Reese Law Firm, part owner of the Florida Environmental Network, and is now the founder of the Relaunch Florida Specifier. Now, that's a mouthful, and we've got a lot to cover, so let's get right to it. Jeff, welcome to Water for Fighting. Thanks a lot, Brett. I'm really excited to be here. I typically move from birth forward with the podcast guests, but part of your childhood and nearly every year since is intertwined with the events of this week. It's Environmental Permitting Summer School Week in Marco Island, or as I sometimes refer to it as the Super Bowl of Environmental Professionals here in Florida. Your father, Chuck Littlejohn, started it all. And now you're carrying that torch all these years later. Talk about summer school's inception and what it means to you. It's uh, really meaningful to me and, and my whole family, Brad. I, I, uh, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to be in this position now to kind of carry the torch that my dad lit so many years ago when he started this whole thing with the chamber back in, back in 1986 or 87, I believe. You're right. It's been part of my life for almost as long as I can remember. It, it was always uh, billed as a family-friendly event. A, a lot of people that have been down there many years, if you've gone through a part of your life where you're you're having kids and it's a great place to bring them, and I think a lot of people have taken advantage of that, and we've really encouraged that over the years. And I, I was certainly part of that from the very beginning. I think the, the very first year uh, would have been 1987 because I was 16. And I remember that summer getting to go down there and I got, you know, hang out at the pool and, and the beach. And I never really understood what my dad did. So, you know, <laughs> he he was inside doing his thing and I was just out by the pool. But there were always a lot of kids there and it was always easy to meet other kids who had, you know, parents at the at the event. And it was really cool. I, I don't remember Ryan Matthews uh, early on, I think in, in those first couple of years that I went before I went off to college. Because I think he was, you know, he's a lot, a lot younger than me, so uh, he he might have been in the kiddie pool, right? And uh, <laughs> but I do remember, I just I remember thinking uh, as as Ryan and I've been talking about this lately, how cool it is that he remembers growing up there too as a kid and his dad going, and we've you know yeah. we've had those experiences and, and kind of bonded over that shared experience, and it's, it's really meaningful that that we get to do it together now, you know, knowing that our our fathers were involved from the very beginning, and now we're doing it together. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that is cool. And, you know, myself off and on for the last 21, 22 years have gone. I find myself not on the beach or in the pool because obviously we're down there to work more. When it comes to you, was there a point when you were younger, what was that point when you started to pay attention to what was going on inside of the building rather than out back? 
Oh, it, it wasn't until I came back later as a as an environmental professional and went as an attendee. I mean, as a, as a kid, it was just a fun place to go. Nice, nice. Okay, let's uh, let's press the rewind button a bit. Now back to standard operating procedure. You were born in Melbourne, here in Florida, but you grew up in a bunch of different places, right? Yeah, that's right. See, yeah, and part of that, I want to talk about not just your parents, but I also want to talk about your step parents a little bit. Because based on your choices of career, it seems like they've had a significant impact to you all, all the way around. First, let's start with your dad and mom. Where are Chuck and Donna from and how did they get to Florida? Yeah, that, that's an interesting story. I ended up calling my mom this week to make sure I had all the details right. She's going to listen to this, I'm sure, and she'll fact check me if I'm, if I'm wrong about <laughs> something. So my dad's family is from Western South, South Carolina, Greenville, Clemson area. And if yes, if you Google it or didn't know, the Little John Coliseum there at Clemson University is a, let's say, relative. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, the, my, so my family's from there, but my the Little John clan originated from there. Uh, but my grandfather moved my dad and his two sisters and my grandmother down to Fort Lauderdale in what would have been the 50s. For, for work, he was a World War II Navy guy and were, ended up working for Sears as a store manager and opened up a lot of different Sears stores for the company. And one of those brought him to Fort Lauderdale. And that's where my dad grew up mainly in his kind of middle school, high school years, graduated from high school down there. And mm-hmm. and even after he went off to college and, and I you know got older and started coming home, and I, when I visited my parents, I got to go see the house where he spent most of his life down in Fort Lauderdale. It was pretty cool. My mom is from Waco, Texas. She's from a large Catholic family. She was one of eight siblings. She's got a very interesting story, too. She's the oldest, so she tells me that growing up there, she almost felt like she didn't have much of a childhood. She became a babysitter as far back as she can remember. So I think by the time she got ready to graduate high school and look for what to do next, it was get as far away from Waco as possible and have a different life. So after high school, volunteered to go on a USO tour. And she ended up going to Europe and all kinds of places, seeing for GIs around around the world. At some point, she met a boy and followed him to Atlanta, Georgia. And he ended up being a roommate of my dad's. <laughs> he also ended up having a fiance. Oh. Yeah. But anyway, so it was, I've forgiven him because it got my mom to meet my dad and they ended up hitting it off. And she might say he was a rebound. I I don't know. I think that's probably accurate. (laughs) But they started dating and uh, she got a job there. And when he graduated, he took her back to Waco to get married in her hometown and home church. And then after that, they went down to Florida. Is your dad Catholic? or was No, he... no, it was my mom's family. And... Okay. They went back to Waco, Texas to get married. At what point? You were, I think you were... Oh, I wasn't born yet. Yeah, no, they, yeah. Yeah, they, they just got married. And then my dad got a job. This was in the late 60s, maybe 70. And he got a job at Harris Court working in the Apollo program. So that's what got them to Melbourne. That's that's how I ended okay. up being born in Melbourne as he was working at Harris Corp at the time as an engineer. You know, he had just graduated from tech. He was doing kind of that industrial engineering thing. And I, I learned later from him that that just wasn't, just didn't, it wasn't interesting to him. I think he thought he wanted to do that, but uh, he didn't like it for some reason. He ended up going back to college, went to UF to study environmental engineering. And so that's where, you, you know, you said I moved around a lot. I did. I think I moved two or three times while I was still in diapers. Hmm. So I went from Melbourne to Gainesville. He got his master's there, I think either right after he graduated or maybe even 
right before he was he graduated, uh, he was recruited in the Lawton Childs administration to come up to Tallahassee and, and join. I don't think it was DER was his first job. I think he, he was at a predecessor agency, but he was there right near the very beginning of the establishment of DER with some of those other old timers you've heard about, Jay yeah. Landers and that crew. He worked for Jay Landers. Okay. And so that brought us all up to Tallahassee. Okay. So I was still a very young boy and up here in Tallahassee. He had the state job. My mom was going to FSU, uh, trying to get a get a degree in nursing. That's kind of, I think, when the wheels fell off in our little mm-hmm. family. Yep. Not that those types of things are fortuitous necessarily, but it does bring your stepfather, Mac, into the story. Sounds like a, an interesting guy. I know your dad. I do not know Mac, but I think he's part of why you spent a lot of time moving around and also your attachment to the, the Navy, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, he is very different from my father. He had been a corpsman in Vietnam, deployed with the Marines. He was definitely, he's a big guy, a tough guy, wore a lot of that experience on his sleeve. He was a Navy guy for, mm-hmm. for, for sure. So he came back from there and went to FSU on the GI Bill. His family was from the Panhandle. So I think he just, FSU was a natural place to go. Mm-hmm. He was also in the nursing program. So yes, he was a Navy nurse, but I think if you were to try to imagine what that's like, he was more, uh, he was, his personality was a lot closer to the, to the door gunner in full metal jacket <laughs> than to like Gaylord Fokker. Oh, all right. That's, that's a picture. Yeah. That's a picture. Yeah. So a little closer to the door gunner. They both were in the same nursing school class. And so they knew each other only because they were going to school together taking classes together, but they were not together until after my, my mom and dad had, had separated and divorced and a couple of years later, and they were getting close to graduation. And I think that they made a connection. And it wasn't long after that, that we all got shipped off to San Diego, which was his first duty station after graduating, became an officer, and they got married out in San Diego. Okay. And I went with them. Well, let's let's try to contextualize your life in the middle of that now, because I mean, all that's like, I, you know, I love family dramas and and how how where people come from, and it informs how their their minds work a lot. But I want to focus on you a little bit in the midst of that. What were you like as a kid? What activities did you enjoy? I remember not having a lot of close friends. We moved a lot. You know, I was in San Diego as a six or seven or eight year old. Uh, we went to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, nine, 10, 11, went to Pensacola, 12, 13, 14, and went out to Houston, Texas for the rest of, of high school. And so I, I never really stayed in one place long enough to have very close friends. I'd meet some you know, people in school or neighbors or whatever, and, and I end up having some friends. But I think because maybe because of all of the moving around or, or just my personality, I was kind of a bookish type, right? I, I like to read books. I like I had an Atari 2600 and a Commodore 64 oh. and an Intellivision and a and Betamax. So like I was in the, wow. like that's the, that's. You, your house was the place to be. Oh, in the eighties we had, yeah, all, all the, all the latest tech. So, but I, I played a lot of I played games. I read a lot of books and I don't, I think you should cut this out, Brett, but I, <laughs> I, I played Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, I, I was definitely a nerd. That's, yeah. I think it's cool. But the academics, I think, was a huge part of how you ended up at the Naval Academy, right? I mean, they don't let people like me in the Naval Academy, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't get a Dungeons and Dragons scholarship. (laughs) No, I I also didn't put that on my application, though. I I think that might have been a a negative. With my, uh, my dad and my stepdad in the in the Navy and mom always working as a nurse. I was a latchkey kid and I don't remember a lot of vacations. So yeah, schooling was 
was always relatively easy for me. I think I probably, in a lot of places, liked my teachers more than I liked most of the kids I was going to school with. Yeah, I wasn't terribly outdoorsy. I did play soccer growing up, and I was good enough to be a kind of a bench warmer on the varsity team and in high school. And I, I think that helped round me out just enough to maybe be socially uh, acceptable at, at some point later in high school. And, right. and, uh, and that, helped, that helped with my application to the academy. Did you already know before you went to the academy what you wanted to study in college? The, the path that, that brought me there, obviously I was experienced or had some exposure to the Navy through my stepdad, of course, but it was really the summer of 86 when Top Gun came out that I, oh, yeah. that, that I got the bug, right? I just knew I wanted to be a pilot in the Navy and I, you know, wanted to, ha- you know, I wanted to be an engineer and, and I wanted to, you know, relive that movie, right? I mean, it was just right. a, it was a childhood fantasy for a 15-year-old at that at that point in your life. I got a chance to go to summer camp for nerds, basically, at the at the Naval Academy the next year, and that just sealed the deal for me. I got to see the campus, and it was a great experience. And but uh, yeah, so I came home that next year, going back to high school, and immediately applied. I was appointed in '88, and then graduated from high school in '89. Yeah, you mentioned the the pilot thing, and I think I'm not sure any 15 year old, you know, or or in that age range that saw Top Gun when we were kids had any other idea than they wanted to be a fighter pilot for the Navy. Your eyes had other ideas in that sense, right? Maybe genetically, or maybe just because of all of the studying. Uh, but my eyes went bad. I think my sophomore year, and not terrible, not not like disqualified from active duty kind of bad, but disqualified from pilot capability. Uh, you had to have perfect vision back then and you couldn't get them, your eyes surgically corrected back then. So uh, yeah, I, I dropped out of the candidacy for uh, for aviation, I think sophomore year. Not not that you had to declare that early, but that was just my, that was my calling back then is that's right. what I wanted to do. And yeah, that changed when my eyesight uh, failed. That's how I understood the policy to be is that you had to have perfect eyesight and it can be corrected. Is that different now? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I don't know when it changed exactly, but I do remember hearing later with a lot of disappointment, of course, that look at these uh, lame kids now. They can go in with crappy eyesight and right. get, get cut on, and they're they're fine. They can become Afric. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a little bit of, if, if you can tell that, yeah, there's a little yeah. sour milk there. No, definitely, yeah. definitely. So you can't be a pilot, so naturally you choose the job that's the exact opposite of flying around the air, and that's hanging around underwater. So I was I was a little disappointed and when I learned from the docs that I couldn't fly. And of course, I knew the Navy had ships, and that was the natural backup plan for 75, 80% of the kids there going on ships and or submarines or something like that. And I just, it just didn't feel like something that it wasn't exciting to me. And so I was looking around for other things to do and other opportunities. And and there there was a chance to compete for a spot to go to dive school as a midshipman, you know, as a, as a student at the academy. And so I went the summer between my junior and senior year. I got a spot to go to Panama City Beach, Florida, and go to, to Navy dive school. And it was, it was a just a very, very cool experience. It was tough. It was a lot of fun too. And I just really liked it. I liked the culture. They never made any Top Gun movies out of it, you know, about it, but um, but it was a lot of fun. The culture was great. And, and I just liked the guys and the missions and it called to me from there. So that was what I pursued from that from that point on. And a year later when I graduated, I got a spot to go to uh, to go back to dive school and become a dive officer. I want to take just a moment to talk about my friends at Res. 
Florida is a treasure trove of natural wonders, but the cost of that treasure is our collective responsibility to restore and protect its ecological and water resources. That's where my friends at Res, the nation's leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, are at their best. With an extensive Florida-based team, Res provides top-notch, nature-based solutions that uplift Florida's ecosystems and the communities that rely on them. From water quality to hydrological restoration, wetland mitigation to coastal resilience, Res addresses the complex challenges facing our state with their unique operating model of taking full responsibility for their project's performance over time. Working with both the public and private sectors, Res is tackling the issues affecting Florida's water and land resources the most. Their long-term, cost-effective, and sustainable projects rehabilitate impaired ecosystems, helping them do the work nature intended. Cleansing water, sheltering wildlife, buffering storms, and sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Join Res on their mission to restore and uplift Florida's ecosystems. Visit www.res.us to learn more about Res and their commitment to creating a resilient future for Florida. All right, let's get back to the conversation. And talk a little bit about your jobs, your duties in the Navy. You were in EOD, right? That's an interesting choice of jobs there. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I didn't tell my mom that that's what <laughs> I selected for for maybe years later, until it was too late for her to intervene. So in the in the dive community in the Navy, you can you can choose to go on to additional training and learn how to diffuse military ordnance mm-hmm. and going from kind of what you called salvage diving or traditional ship's husbandry diving into into explosive ordnance disposal. And again, I think it just the challenge and the you know being young and believing you're immortal. It just seemed exciting, and I, I signed up for it and, and got a spot and went to that training. And that led to all kinds of just, you know, fantastic adventures and mm-hmm. stories. And the, the, the training was, was great. The opportunity to legally set off explosives, you know, for, for a job, I mean, just never seemed real. Mm-hmm. Most of the, that experience, I had to pinch myself because it just, it just felt like it's too much fun to be deserving of a paycheck. I got to spend a lot of time overseas. I served in Europe uh, mainly in that in those in those jobs, and got to go into Bosnia and clear landmines and pick up unexploded ordnance, and you know got to do a lot of diving, got to parachute. I mean, it just it was just it was awesome. Yeah, it has to be like super rewarding. Your mom does know that that's what you did. Right <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, mom, I uh, withheld weird, that from you. Yeah, it's it's all right. I, I survived it, so she doesn't care anymore. So uh, raised the question, why leave the Navy? And I think I know the answer. I think one point you said that you left for a girl. Did I get that right? I, I left for reasons. The, the next job that the Navy told me I was going to have was a, what I considered a desk job in a, in a pretty uh, bleak part of the world in the Middle East. And this was in 2000. And I just thought... Well, that's the last place I want to spend the next three years of my life. Not, you know, not knowing that the next year would become the epicenter of all kinds of activity. But, but at that time, that just did not appeal to me. I also I served with a lot of guys who were married, some of whom had children, and I don't remember a lot of very happy families. Yeah, you know they, and I, you know, and I grew up in a similar lifestyle. My dad didn't deploy as much as as we were deploying, but moving around all the time and and spending time from home. You know, these weren't all happy, happy marriages and happy families. And I thought, I, I knew I wanted to have a family. I, 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 you know, I did meet 
my my future wife back then and not that I necessarily knew I mean she she would call me on this if I said oh I knew I was going to marry her that I knew that I wanted to have a family one day and I knew that 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 was not going to be pretty if I stayed in the navy and and the navy just it it wasn't exciting like the next thing for me wasn't exciting and I I hate the way that sounds as I say because it almost sounds like I'm right. being selfish oh it's not fun anymore Jeff so okay do something you know anyway I I I also really wanted to become a what I call a real engineer. I, I got an engineering degree from the academy, but you know when you're in the navy, you're not you know with with few exceptions, you're not using your degree. I mean they're they're you know English majors that fly airplanes and engineers that just fool around with explosives and play. I, I saw myself as an engineer. I wanted to become one, and I wanted to go home to Florida. I think I was homesick. I'd spent most of my time in the military away from home in the United States, and I, I was homesick. Makes sense. My mom and dad were the same. They were both Navy brats, and my dad was a Navy guy, and so he had no trouble moving around. But I think the, the that last one finally got my mom is where I was stuck in, in Hillsborough County. She's like, I don't want to, I just don't want to move anymore. And he loved it. I, you know, lived all over the world. He said, you know, Navy guy like yourself. But it gets tough, I mean, mm-hmm. after after a while. So you wind up back in in Florida, and you want to do some real engineering. Was family the reason why you chose to come to Florida? For for sure. I mean, I was born in Florida. Uh, You know, I I can't say I was raised in Florida like in a traditional sense, but uh, my dad had always been in Tallahassee, and you know, we didn't really talk about this much. But one of the things that I that I remember very fondly growing up is in the summer times, I would always look forward to the chance to, to go. And I, my dad would get me for a month or six weeks in the summer. And um, and so I would fly from wherever we were living at the time back to Tallahassee. And so if there's any place that really felt like home growing up, it was Tallahassee. When I left the Navy, I didn't move back to Tallahassee, but I, I, I kind of knew I wanted to be in Florida. My my dad uh, was still in Tallahassee. He, he married uh, Cindy when I went off to college. And so he was there with, with Cindy's daughters, Jamie and Tracy. They were all in Tallahassee. My mom and stepdad settled in Tampa, where I had a brother who, who was still in high school at the time, uncles and aunts. And so I, I just have a lot of family in Florida, and it, it felt like the place to go. So, yeah, when I got out of the Navy, I went back home and stayed uh, in, in Tampa for like a week before I just had to get out of there. <laughs> so <laughs> I had, I had done my resume already and sent it out everywhere, and I just got a, did a road trip and uh, met with a bunch of engineering firms, and I think I picked my firm and agreed to a you know a start date in about a week, and I think I was working like the next week. Wow. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and I guess I don't want to gloss over too much of that because I mean it's the reason why you came back was to 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 do engineering, but uh, but I want to talk about your transition from being a working engineer to the that world of, of policy because your father famously involved in environmental policy in Florida for many decades. When did you start feeling that need to edge in that direction? It wasn't for many years later. I was doing engineering for, for a company called Isominger and Stubbs Engineering in Palm Beach County. They were very niche, a small engineering firm. It was a great fit for me. Um, I don't think I would have done well going to a big production engineering company because I was a brand new engineer at 30 years old, right? Mm-hmm. I, I would have been in the cubby holes or cubicles with, with 22 year olds. And, and I don't know that that would have gone well, but, but Charlie Isominger, he was my mentor, my first job, uh, my first boss out of, out of the Navy. And, and he was great. He just threw me right into, into project management and, and, and helped me become a real engineer. He was not, I, 
I, I shouldn't say it's not fair to say he wasn't a policy guy, but I think he was focused on serving the client and engineering. But he did encourage me to get involved in professional associations. And so I joined the Florida Engineering Society very early in, uh, to my, in my career. And, and then I volunteered on, on one of the committees. There's uh, policy committees at, at Florida Engineering Society. And one of them was an environmental committee called CEQ, Conservation and Environmental Quality Committee. And, I, and, and, and so here's kind of the, the part of the connections that begin to happen so my dad was a lobbyist at that time. He had left DER, left, uh, uh, was, was uh, doing lobbying for the chamber and for lots of other folks, including Florida Engineering Society. And he served the Conservation Environmental Quality Committee as a policy and uh, advisor and, and lobbyist. When I joined that committee, I got to see my dad as a, as a lobbyist. And I began to really understand for the very first time what it meant, what, what policy meant. And, and, I, and I, I begin to slowly understand the benefit maybe in client service, knowing what maybe changes are happening at DEP or things like that. And I, you know, I would pick those up at those at those committees. And then what it meant when I would see him over Thanksgiving or Christmas is now I could have a conversation with him and it wasn't just complete Chinese arithmetic coming right. out of his mouth. I could start to understand what he did. It started to make more sense. Still wasn't terribly interesting to me, though, at the time. I, I, I didn't want to become a lobbyist or become a policy guy. Uh, what I wanted to be was a regular engineer and have a family. It wasn't long after I moved to Palm Beach County that the January came, you know, came home. Her family was from South Florida. We, uh, we reconnected down there and, and started a family down there. Nice. How did you end up in Tallahassee eventually? Was it when you ended up at DEP or was it before then? No, uh, it was actually before then. Um, this would have been 2007 or eight, maybe a year earlier than that. But right around then, we had a client in North Florida. We were spending some time up in North Florida working on that project. It was actually Shell Point Marina, uh, not too far from here. And I think we had had one kid, maybe just had our second kid, and we had decided that uh, she went to FSU, and and uh, you know I've got lots of family in Tallahassee. We both decided it seems like at the same time that hey, wouldn't it be better to raise a family up in Tallahassee than uh, down here in Palm Beach County? No offense to the Palm Beach County folks, but we like the small town feel better. And yeah, my uh, Charlie Esminger supported the move, and we opened up a small Tallahassee office, a one-man Tallahassee office, and I was working up here. What kind of projects were you working on when you when you had your office uh, up here in Tallahassee? Well, Shell, Shell Point Marina was was a big project that occupied a lot of my time. I split my time between design and permitting, and uh, and that that project needed a lot of both. But I was still working on projects that I'd started in South Florida, and I picked up a little bit of work here and there up here. But that was, if you remember back in that time frame, that was when the real estate economy was really starting to slide into the ditch, and there weren't a, a ton of, of development projects up here, and so did it, you know, just kept chipping away at, at the work. And so at some point, you end up at DEP. I spent a little time there. We uh, we were there at the same time with Herschel Vineyard. Who recruited you to do that? How did that happen? Was it him, or was it someone else? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great story. You remember that committee I mentioned earlier, that conservation committee yeah. at, at, at FES? So we had an annual meeting. We, Florida Engineering Society, had an annual meeting of that committee up here in Tallahassee, and people that served on that committee around the state would drive up. And, and we did that so we could have a face-to-face with with some of the leadership of DEP. And so this was the, the CEQ meeting in early 2011. I think it would, would have been February. Uh, Herschel Vineyard had been appointed maybe a week earlier. And I don't know if you remember, but the transition team, I think, accepted most of the resignation letters from most of the senior leadership at DEP. So he mm-hmm. he basically inherited an agency with not a lot of, of the leadership positions filled. And so he, he came to the committee meeting and kind of introduced himself and described his vision for the agency and made an appeal to those of us who may be interested in, in serving. It may have been because he was talking to a bunch of engineers, but he also said, I'm, I'm looking for some engineers. I want to, you know, I want to do some good work and describe that vision. And it, it called to me. So after, after the meeting was over, I I picked up the phone and called my boss and told him what I had heard and told him that it, I really liked what I heard. I kind of described it and I said, hey, would you support me throwing my name in the hat just to, you know, I might get an interview. I might get to meet the guy. No chance he's going to hire me. I think I was 39 and had no gray hair. And I, I was sure that he would want a, a gray haired, wiser person than me, maybe with with a more even temperament than me. I, I don't know. I didn't know what he was looking for, but I threw my name in the hat and got an interview and that's how I actually met him. Was it awkward? I was there a little bit later. I think it was a year after he started at, at DEP. Was it awkward going into a place where you were kind of playing that whole turned over Apple card, rebuild it back into to something that functioned differently? I never thought about it that way. Herschel and I have shared lots of those memories of those early days at DEP. And the way the way I think I would characterize it, I think the way he would characterize it too, I think we both felt like, I don't know, wide-eyed or uh, kind of deer in the headlights. We didn't know what the rules were. Neither of us had spent any time in state government. Yeah. I, I think... I think when I interviewed, that was my first time in the Douglas building. I mean, I wow. I didn't know anything about DEP. And suddenly I've, I've got that job. And I think Secretary Vineyard kind of felt the same way. Like, wow, this okay, so this is the restroom. I, I, you know, how does this work? You know, what, what what is my day supposed to be over here? So right. I think we we I think we un, we had an understanding. I know he he spent some time with the newly elected Governor Scott about kind of his vision. Herschel had a vision for what he wanted at the agency, and it again it, that was a vision that resonated with me. He expected us to find ways to reduce unnecessary burdens, not not enforcing environmental laws, but finding ways to enforce them more efficiently so that those those burdens could be lowered, focusing more on, you know, the outcome than the process. And those were, you know, as an engineer, I, I all of that stuff, I just, I, I ate that up. All right, let's pause for a moment to talk about my friends at Sea and Shoreline. As we in Florida wonder what the future holds when we face the storm season ahead, Sea and Shoreline is working to protect our coastline communities against severe storms by installing a variety of green and gray infrastructure solutions to make our cities and counties more resilient. These solutions include seagrass restoration, mangroves, oyster reefs, riprap, oyster breakwaters, and something called a WAD, which stands for Wave Attenuation Device. By installing their patented WADs, Sea and Shoreline can help protect our communities against sea level rise and storm surges by diffusing wave energy, stopping shoreline erosion, and even rebuilding shorelines through sand accretion. To learn more about how Sea and Shoreline can protect your community, visit seaandshoreline.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. 
And I guess maybe that's why I perhaps attribute that that potential awkwardness is neither one of you were, were government folks or a lot of us government people that have been around for a bit before then. And so you walk in, it's like, you have an idea what you want to do. It's like, but you don't know how to do it. And I think, interestingly, I mean, that became the subject of, depending on the week, it seemed like, the subject of some controversy for you, for Herschel. What was your approach? Because I don't think it was like you were being intentionally controversial. Like, hey, we're going to do this thing that's going to make someone upset on a, on a given moment. What was your mindset going into some of the changes that you specifically were working on at the department? Well, you're, you're right in your characterization of, of kind of how we were, I think, covered sometimes by the media. But but our our attitude, uh, my attitude, I'll speak for myself. I was focused on how to get to answers faster. You know, yes or no. I felt like you shouldn't have to, you know, get into an unending back and forth with the agency trying to get to a permit decision. So, you know, I also learned through that process what the difference between uh, something that I could just say by decree and it could happen. And then and then things that the lawyers would say, oh, no, that that would take rulemaking. So you can't do that. So anyway, I, I did I did stumble around a lot in, in that world. But one of the, the things that I learned that I could control, I tried to pull on those levers. And one of the one of the very earliest ones, and I, th- I think it may still be policy today, is on the request for additional information. I said, all of the the permit processors, you get one. And then your second one needs to be signed off by your supervisor. And, you know, by the time you get to the third one, I'm asking a division director to sign off on it. And, and I'm the only one that can approve a fourth RAI. And I, there were no four RAIs that never happened. So I, I think that sent the clear message that I wanted, you know, I wanted us to get to, to answers faster. I wasn't putting my finger on the scale. I never asked anybody to, you know, say yes more often. I just wanted to get them to get to answers. Another thing that we did is we really looked hard at where we were spending our time and energy. And one of one of the areas that I felt like we were really spending our wheels is pursuing what I would just call paperwork violations. You know, folks that had filled out their annual report incorrectly, and we would launch the the salvo at them and and send lawyer letters and and drag them through the knothole and charge them five hundred dollars. And I I thought that that didn't it just didn't sit right with me there wasn't any environmental impact associated with a paperwork violation uh, but we were spending the majority of our time maybe 80% of our enforcement effort was on those types of activities so i said let's get out in the field and communicate with the folks that we regulate we called it compliance assistance and, and and that was one of those things that I think became controversial. I was convinced, I continue to be convinced that that's a better way to regulate if folks that have questions feel like if they call the regulatory agency and it may result in a bad letter from a lawyer, you might not call anymore. So you just don't. Felt like a cops and robbers types of, type of uh, relationship. But when we got out in the field, kind of put our, left our enforcement or inspector hat in the car and just started working with people, we found that there was just a lot of confusion and a lot of, of lack of knowledge about what was expected of them by us. And in that interaction, I think we, we improved our relationships with the folks that we regulated. And, and, I, and, and that was one of those things that for some reason you know, was controversial, the fact that we had less penalties or less fines collected or the, the feeling that if you go out in the field and meet with a mom and pop 
and help them understand what the paperwork requirements were, that that's somehow being too cozy with the regulated. I never understood why that was controversial, but that was controversial. Yeah, I think it was. And, and some of that carried over to our work at the Northwest Florida Water Management District. I think maybe incorrectly people were correlating the number of fines and maybe those decreasing with a correlative decrease in compliance with the rule and law. And I don't think that was the case. I know it wasn't the case at Northwest Florida. No. But I don't think it was the case at DEPI. No, definitely not. And and I, I really was bothered by the, that characterization of our mission as if our job was to penalize people. And and I think I, I even was allowed once to write an op-ed. I think it was my one and only op-ed when I, when, I, when I was at DEP. <laughs> but I, I remember writing an article about equating that to, in the you know, I've never been a teacher, but in the, in the profession of education, you certainly wouldn't reward teachers on how many Fs you hand out, right? You, it, it's, you're going to measure your performance as a teacher by how successful your students were. And, and I felt like that a regulated community that had a close working relationship with the regulator, that worked together on solving issues, that worked together to avoid violations, that would, that would create better outcomes for the environment. And I, and I think that, that that bears out. And even as, as I was leaving, we started to see some changing in the discussion at EPA, for example. They, they began a compliance assistance program not, not long after I left, and I was happy to see that. I think it is a better way to work with the regulator and the regulated. There, there are just so few. I mean, this is not the 1970s with the rivers on fire and mm-hmm. people intentionally piping their wastewater out into the environment. This is a day and age where the vast, vast majority of people and companies want to do everything they can to, to maintain compliance. But we have a very complicated set of environmental regulations and not everybody has a full environmental staff or can avoid or, or can can afford a high-priced environmental attorney or consultant to help them and, and in those cases they sometimes just make mistakes because they don't know yeah and when did you leave the department i forget which which year it was i think i was already gone by then I th- almost certainly it was 2014 so i i joined right before the session in 2011 so it would have been march of 2011 and i left in june of 2014 was that how it was always going to go? That you want to go in and get a get a taste for it, have a you know maybe have a little fun possibly, and then move on? Or did, was your expectation you know, I'm going to do this for for a long time if I enjoy it? I didn't really have a, a, a set expectation on how long I would stay. I mean, I I told Secretary Vineyard you you can count on me for at least two years. I'm not going to just come in and leave in in six months. I think I had convinced my family and myself that I could gut it out for at least four years. I didn't quite make four years, but it, it was definitely hard. I mean, we as much fun as we had, it was constant activity, a lot of travel, a lot of time away from the house and the family. And at that time, I think my kids, when I when I left DEP, I think my kids were five, three, no, seven, five, and three. Mm-hmm. So we're very, they were all very young. And my wife was at home with them, and I was just away a lot. It was it was hard on the family. There, there was another component to my decision as well. You know, the governor was coming up for re-election. I think Secretary Vineyard, I'm not sure that anybody in the public knew at the time, but I think he'd pretty much let everybody know he was done at the end of the term. So there wasn't much time left for his term either. My dad had been telling me for a year or so that he he was really ready to retire. And I, I wanted 
an opportunity to work with him. I, I'd never worked with him. I mean, I, I've worked around him. I've been, I've seen him work, but I, as a kid, I got to see him in the summers, but I, I never really had a time where I could spend a lot of time with him professionally. And, and I wanted to have that experience before he retired. And so, you know, he and I talked at some point after session and, and we just decided this was a good time. Did you enjoy that? I, I really did. I think I had about a year before he hung up his spurs and, and really wrapped everything up. His partner, Doug Mann, was still, he worked for several years after that. They were fantastic mentors. I, I'd never intended to become a lobbyist. I'm not sure that I could even say I ever really became a lobbyist, <laughs> certainly not in the way that my dad or Doug Mann were. Right. But it was very cool to, to have a chance to work at Little John Mann and Associates that had been around for, at that time, maybe 30 years mm-hmm. and, and learn that trade from them before, before he left. Uh, and then, you know, it was just, it was a great experience. Well, lobbying or not, you're easily the most prolific person I can think of when it comes to the number of businesses, side hustles, full (laughs) hustles. I don't even know what you call them that you've gotten yourself involved in. I ran through some of them. I think most of them in the intro. Did I miss any other secret businesses you own or or jobs that you have? Not that I'm willing to disclose in this format. There you go. There you go. No, that that was everything. (laughs) So... Individually, uh, you know, I think they're all interesting. Um, Some of the things that you're working on I think are are really cool. Is there a theme to the the collection of them or is it kind of like that Bruce Willis, Nicolas Cage thing? You don't know how to say no to a job. I have. I'm I'm really blessed with the opportunity to do things that I want to do and that I like to do. And I rarely work long on things that I don't enjoy. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I realize it's a luxury. I mean, I try, even when I'm tired or I feel like I've got too much on my plate, I, I try to remember, I, I reflect that, A, I, I chose this. <laughs> you know, I, this is my fault. There's nobody else who said yes. But, I, but the, these are things that I am passionate about and I do truly enjoy. And it helps me stay energize, which is why I think I am doing as much as I'm doing is I'm having a lot of fun. I'm working with people that I really respect and I really enjoy working with and I really enjoy the issues. And so I'm, there isn't a thing I'm working on right now that I could happily say bye to. So I, so I don't, I just, I just work for you. You just add on to it. <laughs> well, I mean, let's, I mean, let's run through at least some, if not, I want to at least a little bit on all of them, because I think they're all worth talking about. First, what's the National Stormwater Trust and what makes it special? I, I really love this company. So National Stormwater Trust, as the name implies, it, it it's a stormwater focused company. I spend a lot of my time working on this issue. I, I think a lot of people that would listen to this realize that stormwater is a hot topic in Florida. And we, we've recognized that, and I think a lot of people in our industry recognize that we're not going to be able to develop Florida the way we have the last 40 years. And so we really do need new tools in the toolbox National Stormwater Trust brought a pretty cool new tool uh, to the toolbox in Florida that we call Smart Ponds. And so we, we, we got uh, Smart Pond technology approved by the Water Management Districts and DEP, and we're starting to add that type of technology into stormwater uh, facilities here in Florida. I think our claim to fame where we really showed up on the map is when we approached DOT in 2019 and won a big contract to upgrade DOT's existing ponds into smart ponds. And people are still surprised when I tell them that we have that that opportunity. So, so now we lease ponds from DOT, take those 
pond permits to the water manager districts, ask for the upgrade to a smart pond, get all of that entitled in a permit. And in doing so, we are we're also generating water quality credits that we have arranged a way to transfer those credits to third parties through it through an ERP. And we were the first folks to figure out how to make that happen. And I think it's it's a pretty cool new tool. It gives us an opportunity to create a big regional DOT pond and make it more efficient and generate regional water quality benefits and then and then transfer some of those to folks in the watershed. And it's been fun working on on that because it's kind of groundbreaking and on the cutting edge of I think where we're going. And and I'm I'm happy to see that provision is built into the new generation of stormwater regulations. And so that I think that's a an endorsement in some way by by DEP that this is a this is a way that we can really cost-effectively lower nutrient loading you know, in a watershed through through programs and projects like this. It, it is, but I think for, for me personally, it's the, the next one that captures the imagination for me more, and not just because I worked with you a little bit on it, and that's on-site performance. Talk about that a little, because it was one of the, the, the great white whales of springs, and we had a, a huge number of springs in, in North Florida, you know, in Northwest Florida as well, and dealing with septic tanks, dealing with wastewater utilities in sparsely populated areas is a real challenge in terms of making it worth the, the cost. Talk about Onside Little and how it's kind of changing the way that people think about that. I, I, I do love what we're doing at OnSite. And if if I could go back to my DEP experience for just a second, one thing that I was certain I never wanted to get involved with when I was a DEP is anything to do with septic tanks. I just, I knew, and this is a, like you said, a white whale, really tough issues, right? You're yeah. talking about folks that, you know, have a septic tank, they're legally entitled to it. Now we find out because we've allowed too many in a given area, we're creating problems. And now we we as a government are asking them to come back and, and change. And that, that's really tough. And this company is a wastewater technology company that really is just marrying uh, existing types of technologies in, in a new and unique way and bringing it to the marketplace in a, in a really novel way. And, and I've enjoyed becoming a part of it. So the, the short version of what it is and how it works and why it's cool is the company has miniaturized a, a wastewater treatment plant into a form factor that can be used or, or, or sized for a single family home. And and so this is not an advanced septic tank. This is a miniaturized wastewater plant. And it is it is controlled in, in real time, remotely, through a, a connection to the internet, in a SCADA system by a licensed operator, just like a large wastewater plant. When we uh, piloted the technology with DEP, we were talking with them about the opportunity to permit a system of these individual units in the hundreds or thousands, potentially, by virtue of their network connectivity and their central control and their and, and in, a, in a common ownership arrangement, you know, could you DEP permit uh, or issue a permit to a city municipal utility and under that permit allow them to retrofit hundreds or thousands of septic tanks under a single permit? And DEP loved the idea because I think they recognize this this. Uh, puts a professional operator in charge of that of the compliance of that unit in a in a wastewater permit that gives DEP a lot of enforceability to ensure that the the effluent limits are met and all the conditions are met and they were very comfortable issuing permits to wastewater operators you know to to municipal wastewater utilities mm-hmm. they were struggling with how to deal with you know homeowner owned equipment like septic tanks so right. so the the model just fit and we've enjoyed some success getting that model uh, out in the field places like the city of Apopka or Lake County it's been a lot of fun.
One of my own misconceptions going in learning more about what you were up to is the comparison to the typical modern, but we call it, you know, the advanced on-site septic unit. And it's, it sounds for someone like myself who is going into it as layman doesn't understand the distinction between the two, but there's a huge difference. And I think you talk a little bit about that in terms of there's a centralized brain. Are there any other distinctions? And the treatment itself is also better, right? I, I don't think it would be fair to all of the equipment technology companies, the, the technology companies in the space to say that we are head and shoulders higher performing. Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think there are some units out there that have done very well in testing. Comparing test numbers to our results, I think there, there are some that are that are pretty close. But I think the main difference is we are continuously monitoring and operating the equipment and every month sampling the effluent and taking the the grab samples to a lab and having it tested by the lab and turning those lab results to DP. So it it just, it has to do with how much testing we're doing and how much verification of that performance. Hmm. It's one thing to go through a testing program, achieve high marks in a controlled environment, and then go deploy those units out in the field, not knowing how the homeowners are going to actually use them. And what we learned as we've deployed units in the city of Apopka, homeowners are amazingly varied. Sure. You know, <laughs> how much wastewater they generate, even, you yeah. know, from home yeah. to home, certainly, and even at the same home from, from week to week or month to month. And and uh, being able to have a computer on board that's seeing all of that and making those changes in real time and then having a, a real human professional operator that oversees it. We're making changes to the, to the plant uh, recipe and, and process all the time. Okay, job number three <laughs> is you're a senior advisor at the Adams and Reese Law Firm with a mutual friend of ours and former secretary, your former boss and mine, Herschel Vineyard. How the two of you get hooked up? Yeah, that, that's also a little a little bit of a story. Well, first, I uh, greatly respect Herschel Vineyard, and I've always enjoyed every opportunity to work with him for him. Uh, my, my job number three before I joined Adams and Reese was I was still at Little John Mann and Associates, only there was no Doug Mann anymore and there were no associates. It was it was just me. And I haven't ever been a, a, a 100% full-time lobbyist, but I had a handful of clients there, including the Florida Engineering Society and the mm-hmm. Florida Ports Council. Those are fantastic clients and I, I want to continue to help them. But I was a solo practitioner in a lobbying firm of, of one and also trying to do other things too. And administrative and kind of, you know, paperwork burden associated with owning a lobbying company is it's not, it's not insignificant. So when Herschel joined Adams and Reese, he let me know that they could find a home for me over there, even with my kind of unusual work situation uh, they were not afraid of me having, you know, other things going on at that firm. And and that was really different. I'd been approached by a couple of other firms over the years about maybe joining them or, or bringing my book into another lobbying firm. But there was never, it, it wasn't just that there wasn't an appreciation for what I was doing. There was really a kind of an intolerance for this idea that I can do all these other things on the side. But, right. but at Adams and Reese, they've got a very entrepreneurial mindset. And I think the head of the government relations practice group at the time was, ha- happened to be a professional engineer that owned an engineering firm at, as well as working at Adams and Reese. And that really appealed to me. And of course, working for, for Herschel appealed to me. So yeah, I, I closed the, the books on Little John Mann and essentially just moved everything over to Adams and Reese. And I'm, I'm doing the same thing there as I was at Little John Mann. Okay. 
Now, now I want to move on to job number four, <laughs> where you decided to dive straight into the multimedia news business by buying the Florida Specifier. Pretty well known. It's been around for I think like four decades, maybe even more. It's a you know an industry paper for environmental professionals here in Florida. And now you're trying to work with a a crack young team of folks to work with you to uh, expand its reach, expand its utility uh, as well. What on earth were you thinking when you said, let's do this? The way you described that or asked that question, I'm not sure. I, <laughs> that's a, yeah, yeah that's I'm not sure unfair. I really did fully think about it. <laughs> I, I certainly didn't need more on my plate, but I, I, I will confess that Ryan Matthews and I, who, who are both partnered on uh, at Florida Environmental Network, where we produce the summer school with that company, you know, we've been thinking over the years, over the last few years about how, you know, is there anything else we can do to grow the summer school? And the answer, as long as we remain in Marco Island, is, is kind of no. We're, mm-hmm. You know, we're, we've really kind of busting at the seams down there. There, There's no way that I am you know, want to continue to grow that thing to the point where we'd have to move it to Orlando or something like that. So, you know, how do you, how do, you do more fun stuff like that? And, you know, I didn't want to do a second class in Marco. That didn't make any sense. But we, mm-hmm. we were trying to, you know, we were just brainstorming. And this, we learned from the, the then current publisher of the specifier that, there was an opportunity to um, to get involved in that paper. Talk to Ryan, and we thought, sure, we could we could maybe maybe there's some synergy here with the types of issues that we talk about at Marco and mm-hmm. the people that were that are involved in communicating those issues and topics through panels and panelists and speakers and and get them involved in you know providing content and essentially doing kind of what we're doing in Marco, but have that content delivered every other month to your mailbox. And that that was kind of the kernel of the idea. Still not sure it's still not sure. (laughs) Yeah, I think it reinvents itself every few days or so, right? That's right. But it seems like kind of how I've seen it in, in, you know, my, the the small part that I play, which, which by the way, listeners, if you're not enjoying the sound of my voice, you're going to be in real trouble because (laughs) in addition to taking over the the print edition, the editorial board of the paper, which I'm a, a part of with you and Ryan, is going to do another podcast, but it's going to be more direct issue related, news related. And and so I think the maybe the idea is as we add things to it that you want to see, as you said before, you can only have environmental permitting summer school once a year or it's too much. But can you do these other bits where you kind of have summer school all year round where people have these things that they can turn to for Florida professionals to know about what's going on and what people are up to? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, Brad. I, I, I'm, I'm very excited about what we could, the, the potential to provide uh, content uh, like this, have you really, because you're, you're the, the one with the, the talent and the, and the great voice for this format. You're, you, if, if you can get really compelling content by talking to people and, and through conversation, you know, whether it's one-on-one or in groups like we have down at Marco, I, I think people really appreciate the, 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 the when, you're, when you're done with all the PowerPoint presentations and you're just having a conversation, Yeah. right? You've got experts, maybe they come from different, different parts of our industry and they all have their expertise, they all have a, an opinion. And through those conversations, I think we, we can really unpack some, some issues and, and I, I think, just think that's very valuable. 
I think that's one of the reasons people like to go down to Marco is they want to have that time to meet with people. And, and it's not just the networking. I think it's really just that unscripted, those unstructured conversations in the hallway and things that happen after, again, after the presentations are over and you're just in a discussion mode with the panel. And if we can create a place where people can go online and get that kind of content, we can push that kind of content out to people. I think, I think, I think people would appreciate that. I know I would. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's move to the the kind of closing out. You and I, you know, spent a fair amount of time. I think it's important though, and I think that it's your fault because you have like <laughs> seventy five hundred jobs. But let's get to that final race to the end. What professional accomplishment are you most proud of so far? It definitely has to be my time at DEP. I thoroughly enjoyed my job as a consulting engineer. At, at the time I was in it, I had no idea that kind of my horizon was limited by where by where I was. And when I went to DEP, uh, just the opportunity to work the issues I was working and meet the people that I had a chance to meet there and then work with those uh, uh, kind of high quality people there and, and the people we got to, to work with in that role. There's just no substitution for that kind of experience. There, there would be no other way to go from where I was 10 years ago to where I am now without that job. And again, the, the, the issues and the people and the the kind of the mind expanding experience that that was, it's hard to imagine a better place in my career uh, than that. And I, looking back, I mean, it was definitely hard, but it was also, it was hard work, but it was a lot of fun. I like the positive outlook there. And so I focus in on that for, for a second for the next question, which is of that time there, as fruitful as it was, was there, was there something that you left on the table that you mm-hmm. wished you'd either done differently while you were there and had the choice or that if you'd been given a little bit more time that you would have done a little differently? Oh, that's a hard one. I I think that jobs like that, at least the way, the way I experienced it, it felt like we were always dealing with issues coming from every direction. And, and it almost felt a little bit like crisis management all the time, as opposed to being able to set the team you want, create a very high functioning, cohesive team. We were, we were trying to do that in the face of a lot of just kind of constant distraction. I learned a lot about uh, leadership at that job. I mean, I, I had spent some time in the Navy, but I never had an opportunity in any prior role to to work with and serve and also supervise that many people. And I I, I think back to the, those deer in the headlights moments when I felt overwhelmed. And I had a I had a mentor at DEP. I haven't mentioned his name yet. I want to make sure I do. Mike Halpin. I don't know if you remember Mike. I do. He was such a great man and just a wonderful resource, really a fantastic and intuitive leader. And he he was the difference between me kind of struggling that whole time and not having any fun and not getting nearly as much done as I wanted to and, and getting, I, I think we got a, a lot done. Could we have done more? Absolutely. Maybe I put a should have put Mike in my spot and <laughs> I, could have, I could have done something different. You know, I, I wanted to get the 404 assumption program uh, done while we were there. I don't think we had an EPA that had any interest in that, but we took a run at that. I mean, there were a few things that I, I certainly might have done differently, knowing kind of how things went. But no, I, I don't really have any regrets, and and I don't I don't think I I don't think I had any oomph left in me by the time I left. So I'm going to say no. That's a fair answer. Okay. It's a long way of saying that, but it's a fair <laughs> answer. Are you optimistic about the future of the environment in Florida? 
I am. Yeah, I am. Uh, I I know that humans are very innovative. And as long as you don't prevent them from thinking creatively and working the problem, I think we can do a lot of great things. And I and I think this is a, what Florida has, it's really great. I mean, I know we have environmental issues here, but we also have a very enabling environment for problem solving. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to solve a, a lot of our, a lot of our own problems. I mean, if humans can uh, solve the great horse manure crisis of 1893, I think we can we can manage to find a way to clean up our water. Is there anything that keeps you up at night about the environment that you don't know? I, I mean, engineers are great at solving problems. Is there something out there that you're like, I don't know how we're going to do that? Yeah, I'm afraid about the way we talk to each other nowadays. I'm, I'm afraid of that in the public discourse, we are not being effective. I don't like inefficient or ineffective policies that are being driven by either ideology or being driven by a public perception rather than than reality, mm. right? I, I So I, I do hope that we can find ways to communicate with each other more effectively. I don't think, you know, hot topics in the media are the best way to do problem solving. I think we have to roll our sleeves up. If we're going to actually solve problems, we have to actually talk to each other <laughs> in a in a meaningful and productive way. And I, I think that's that's hard. What advice would you give to a young person who's thinking about entering or has just entered uh, the environmental field? And that's another good one. Never stop learning. I think you should get out on the skinny part of the limb and try new things. I, I don't, again, I, I, I think we've got to innovate our way through a lot of the issues we have. And I think it, that humans are really good at that. And, and and you should encourage young people in your organizations, wherever you are, to, to think outside of the box. Uh, maybe talk to people that you disagree with, but, but really talk to them. Don't just disagree with them. Uh, if people are interested in learning more about how you can help them, which of your three odd thousand emails is the best one for folks to reach? I'll put it, I'll put, you know, all your info on the episode notes, but which one do you prefer? Probably Adams and Reese is the easiest place to get to me. Uh, Jeff.littlejohn at, ad- at arlaw.com. There you have it. And I'll put it out there for you folks as well. Jeff Littlejohn, thanks so much for coming on the show. I've enjoyed it, Brett. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. This podcast has been brought to you by Res and C and Shoreline. Don't forget to check the episode notes to visit their websites and learn more about how they can help you. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, probably even Twitter at FLWaterPod. And you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sworn for making the best of what he had to work with and to Dave Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer.